So uh, we just had, as those of you have seen, I don't know if you've seen this, but I'll take time to brag. If you don't follow my wife on Instagram, she posted the cutest picture, video of my daughter the other day. And it's the cutest thing I've ever seen. And I've had three kids. So um, you can go look at that. Uh, But I remember the first time we had, uh, the first time we had our first baby, which there's only first, it's redundant. But we had Owen at the hospital. And there's this moment where um, I pulled the car up and we've been surrounded by doctors and nurses for like the last 48 hours. And we put Owen um, in the car seat and it like hits us like, they're just going to let us drive away with this person. Like there's no training. There's no manual. There's no like, we'll check up on you and make sure you fo- like you get more information taking home a plant from Lowe's than you do taking home a baby from the hospital. It gives you like, it's like, well, make sure it gets sunlight, water it, uh, make sure it gets this plant food. And baby's like, later guys, have fun. Here's your bill. Um, and so we're, we're like trying to, to hype ourselves up. Like we can do this. We're, we're, we're just going to be great. God's entrusted us with this. Uh, we know, uh, we, 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 we know how to not kill things, hopefully. And so uh, we get Owen in the car seat and here's this car seat. <clears throat> I don't know if you've seen an infant car seat but it's like a seat, which is two buckles. That's all it is. And like, this is simple enough. It's a car seat, right? We're going to put our son in a car seat. And so we do it and we put him in there uh, and we clip the top buckle and we get his legs and we flip it out and we clip the second buckle. And then we drive home and we get home. We have some friends waiting at the house and we bring Owen in, in the car seat. And they're like, what are you doing? And apparently we had put Owen in, in the completely wrong way. Like we had actually like filleted his legs out of the straps and like pinned them against the side of the car seat. Um, and we're like, he looks secure. Uh, and, and, but here's the thing. It's like, we looked at this like, this is so simple. It's a car seat. But if we don't understand simple things, it ruins any sort of utility we have in it. It ruins the safety it was to bring. It ruins, like, it crushed my confidence that I had in it. And it was remarkably simple. And, like, we left with all this confidence. Like, we're going to do this. We're parenting win right now. Like, get your your Pinterest boards ready. We're going to kill this. And we get home. And, like, the very first challenge of our parenting was, like, we had no answer to it. (laughs) Like, we had one job, and we did it wrong already. The getting the baby into the car fail. Um, And... And even though we thought it was simple, when it got challenged, what was exposed is that even in our simplicity and knowledge of it, we didn't have a satisfactory explanation of anything. We couldn't explain why we did what we did. And the challenge showed that we really didn't know anything. And there was really only one thing to know. And the truth is, is that each and every one of you is going to face similar challenges in your life when it comes to understanding any worldview but more specifically in this context, your faith. Is we're all going to wrestle with having confidence and thinking we know something. You know that time where you get to maybe your midterm you took this week and you're like, I know this. And the first question comes, you're like, I don't know any of this. Like we get to that moment where we think we know the gospel or we think we know our other worldview. And the first time an an opposing view or a challenge comes, we feel ill-equipped to handle it. Perhaps there are people in here right now who have been Christians for most of their life, and maybe at college, for the first time you're exposed to viewpoints or ideas which threaten beliefs which you once thought as foolproof. Or maybe you're a new Christian in here, and you love the idea of what Jesus has done for us, but you're nervous of letting anyone else know about that because you don't think you know enough to endure their critiques 
of your faith. I don't know if I can endure the pressure that my friends would face or level at me. Or maybe you're a non-believer in here just wanting to examine the world through another perspective and to consider and weigh where this challenges your view and where your view challenges the gospel view. But as we've been working through the book of Colossians, which is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae in our Bible, we've picked up this idea that these dilemmas and these challenges are nothing new. You see, in the church of Colossae in roughly 60 AD, they were wrestling with the way in which their faith, the gospel that had been preached to them, would hold up amidst the scrutiny that their culture was beginning to examine it with. The fact that our faith and our worldview will be challenged is an assumption that we often don't think about. It's a norm that we don't consider, that all worldviews will be challenged, especially a Christian worldview. And this is to be expected, because our world is complicated. We get that, right? Like, take the issues we've just been talking about as a country for the last two weeks, and we've realized there's no simple answer to anything. There are these nuances and these complexities that demand deep thought instead of hot take ideas. It's not simple, which means when it comes to identifying the problem and prescribing a solution, that solution, or in the Christian lens, that faith, can't be simple either. And this is true not only because it's unhelpful, but it's true because a simplistic faith won't be able to hold up to the waves of experience you will encounter over the course of your life. And so the question is, when your mind is being parlayed and taken somewhere, when your actions are being questioned, when your, uh, when your joy is being threatened, what is it that you turn to for security? What is it that you look towards as kind of this organizing principle or this pillar of confidence in the face of challenges to your faith? And it sounds ominous, it sounds threatening, But Paul wants to encourage us in this tonight. He wants to give you, regardless of if you just thought of those challenges being perhaps the worst thing you could could face and an absolute failure, Paul wants to equip you for that tonight. He wants to help you see how your faith makes sense. And to those who are unbelieving, he wants you to see how your faith will ultimately find lack. And this is what we're going to see tonight in our text is this. Here's the big idea that there is nothing simple about Christianity And yet Christianity is simply Jesus. There's nothing simple about Christianity. The the implications and the complexities of what that means on us and on our world are endless. And yet, Christianity is simply Jesus. And so how Paul's going to teach us this is he's going to warn us of three threats to our faith. And he's going to answer each of those three threats by appealing to the person and role of Jesus Christ. And these three th- threats can, three threats, you practice that in the mirror and then try to say it in front of a room full of people coherently, um, are really three uh, camps of people. The first camp we're going to look at are those who are not Christian and do not want you to be Christian either. The second camp are those who claim to be Christian without the gospel. And then the third camp that we'll look at are those who claim to be Christian beyond the gospel. And we're going to pick those apart a little more in a minute. But what we want to do right now is just pray, and then we'll dig in. So Lord, we thank you. Um, Just that song we're saying, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you reached down for us. You called us, um, and we don't deserve it, but we did it because you are gracious and loving. And so Lord, because um, 
uh, you have began a work inside of us in even thinking or pondering or considering what our hope is, what it is we worship, or why we're here, that the completion of these thoughts and the clearest picture of reality is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I pray you help us to see that, to know that, and to live that out rightly in all of our contexts, in all of our classrooms, in all of our dorms. We pray in your name. Amen. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be looking tonight at Colossians 2, uh, verses 8 through 19, actually. And the first challenge we're going to look at, as we said, is kind of the secular challenge to faith. So this is not one that's coming from uh, an openly religious uh, area. And it's a verse that Stephen touched on briefly last week. And so this is verse 8, and it just says this. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So there's one thing that I want to point out that's, that's interesting about this um, passage is that word to take captive. The word um, doesn't just imply like a bondage or a mere captivity. It implies this aspect of being carried away with something. In fact, one um, Greek dictionary I was looking at defines this word, and so this is an academic book that's giving this as a definition of a, of a linguistic issue that was around roughly 2,000 years ago, and this was its definition. To be carried off as booty. <laughs> like a pirate steals treasure, so Paul is warning us of being stolen away by philosophy and empty deceit. Empty deceit bound and carried away, looted, plundered. And it's important for us to think philosophically and logically about things. But Paul's caution is that we would not do so apart from Christ. See, the problem is not that our minds want to solve problems. God made our mind. He's not shocked at that. He's not shocked that as soon as sin entered into this world, Adam and Eve began thinking of structures and ways in which they could relate to God or solve this issue. The problem isn't that we think. The problem is that our thinking is often disconnected or done apart from Jesus. And this is where we get into trouble. And we saw this in the garden where Satan came and he began to speak to Eve. We talked about this a little bit in our worldview class a couple weeks ago. And he began to ask her questions in an effort to deceive her. But he didn't come out with this idea. He's not saying, I'm going to deceive you, Eve. What it was veiled in was teaching. He was attempting to educate her on what it was that she was missing out on. But Satan's goal in his message to Eve was not to educate Eve or to educate Adam, but to plunder their minds, to take it captive, to enslave it, and to quarter it off from thinking right thoughts and godly thoughts. And what Paul is warning us of is a world which seeks to make sense of itself and make sense of you based only on the mind and observations of humanity. He's talking here about a worldview which elevates the logic or reason of man to another level. And if there's a power over and above that, it is merely the power of the created world and the elements therein. If we can observe them, if we can understand those elements, whether we say that there's this spiritual elements that are part of nature or whether it's just these natural elements, that would be the only power that these people are thinking of. So why is this dangerous? Why is this bad? Why is Paul saying things like empty deceit, taking you captive? 
Because human intellect and the natural order are good for making observations, but they're not good when it comes to making implications. They can observe things really well. You are in classes that observe patterns in our world. They understand patterns, patterns and rhythms, but on their own, they can't properly make prescriptions. Or if they do, they're honest say, this is a hypothesis that we have. This is what we think is happening with that. And for example, my five, five-year-old son, he can tell me when I look sick. Hey, dad, you look sick. You're yellow and you're bent over a toilet. And just because I, he can at, properly identify a sickness doesn't mean that I trust him to prescribe me drugs for it. And in the same way, just because the world can rightly identify where an error is, doesn't mean that the world on its own is in a position to prescribe something to fix that error. And that's where the solution is often a different solution. And to some degree, even secular philosophers agree with this. David Hume, a Scottish philosopher in the 1700s who was no man of faith himself, actually says that it is impossible to look at the natural world and mere human intellect and derive any sort of moral norms from it. We cannot, by mere observation, uh, look at our mind, understand our mind, or look at our world and say, because this happens, we ought to do this. Because this happens, this is good. Or because this happens, this is bad. He's saying, as this secular mind, that just because it happens, we cannot take that occurrence and say that it means anything. And the idea of us being able to make sense of the world on our own is even by ch- challenged by those who are outside of the Christian faith. So what this means when Paul is warning of human tradition and empty deceit, it means that attempting to systematically, this is big words, systematically make sense of our world, it's like no one does that. But we all do that. We're all trying to make sense of why things are happening and to what end they're happening. But when we try to do that using only our experience, our thought, and our observation of the natural world, there are two conclusions we have to come to. The first is what Paul is warning against here, and from a secular side, David Hume is warning against, that human thought and natural observation cannot tell us what we need to know about life. They can't tell us. They can't inform us. That's not what they're meant to do. But then the other position is then that we as humans are autonomous and able to define what we need to know about life on our own. That we are able to discern by our logic, by our observations, purpose, morality, meaning, and the scope of life. And what Paul's arguing about here is if you affirm the second option of humans being able to rightly understand and prescribe solutions, you've been taken captive and plundered. You've been taken away and locked up from ever be able, being able to find what is true. And the, the story of the Bible is that we cannot on our own find out what's really wrong with this world. Take the issue we've been wrestling with gun, gun control the past week. You asked 18 different people and you'll find 18 different reasons why this happened. We can't solve some of the most common issues in our country yet we think we can solve the whole scope of humanity. We can't. We can't properly see what's wrong. We can't rightly know what needs to be fixed, but this is the danger of being taken captive by something which is not Christ. 
But Paul's not just saying there's danger in thinking humanistic thoughts. There's danger in just making wild hypotheses about what's going on in nature. He's saying instead, be taken according to Christ. Think about what Christ has said about this world. Think about what God has created and spoken to us. And why is this better? Paul continues, verses 9 through 15. For in him, that's Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raises him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is a really dense passage of scripture that we could spend four weeks on dissecting uh, the circumcision made without hands, this baptism and being raised with him, this faith component. But here's what I want us to see tonight. And the first thing is that Paul answers the logic of the world, this human tradition, this philosophy. Um, He answers the logic of this world with the logic of the cross. Did you feel like the weight of that? I know you did because some of your eyes glassed over. (laughs) You're sitting there in Paul's uh, like cascading clauses of this and then this and then this and then this. And you're like, just get it off the screen and tell me what I'm looking at in this. We glazed over and, and Paul is warning about these elemental spirits in the world. But then what he does is he gives us all the elements of salvation. He logically begins to unpack how it is that Jesus has saved us. He answers philosophy and reason with a divine logic. And we know that there's this literary convention he uses in Greek here that's hidden in this word for in verse 9. When Paul says for, he's literally saying, let me prove my thesis. For, let it be known. For, here is my proof. Christ is the fullness of all divinity. And if the fullness of all divinity is the, and the head of all rule and authority has filled you, then there's no greater authority. Then you have no lack. And why would you have him? Well, because he came and he changed our hearts. He died so that we could be made alive. He cut off what was sinful so that we might have what was sinless. He was buried so that through faith we would be raised with him. And he says, this thesis is not my own observation. It's not something observed by human standards and met by a hypothesis of what we think we can prove. Instead, it is the clearest picture of reality, according not to Paul, according not to the church, but according to the God who created all reality. And if there is a God who created, then there's no one best to describe the plight of humanity and the solution for humanity than that God. It rightly identifies the problem of humanity and then Paul sets out to prove it, to solve it, not by offering a philosophical proof, but by offering the proof of the cross. And in so doing, we see the first point tonight. It's backloaded, don't worry, they're not gonna be equal, (laughs) is this. The first point 
is that we will not be taken captive if we're saved by a conqueror. Paul is warning about being taken captive and carried away as treasure. But look with me at Colossians 3, or 2, excuse me, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So I want you to hear what this is saying about you and what this is saying about Jesus. You are dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. That's Jesus. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So our problem, David Hume was right. We are limited. We are finite. We are fallen. We are not autonomous. We are not gods. We are not ultimate. And the problem, Paul says, is we had this record of wrong, this sin, which stood against us. It stood against us and it defined us and it demanded punishment towards us. And this says something about people proclaiming another philosophy. And it says something about us. If what this is saying is true, then why would we listen to humans trying to solve ultimate problems? Prisoners make poor captains and debtors make lousy lenders. But then for us and for them, if we were imprisoned and if we were in debt, how much greater is it when Christ came and he set this aside? This power, this rule, this demand, this damnation, this debt we had, Jesus set it aside and it says he has taken in that all rule and authority and put them to open shame on the cross. So why would you, in seeing this conquering Christ, why would you be carried away by a system of thought which will one day itself be plundered by Jesus? Be laid bare for the emptiness that it is. You may board the boat of human autonomy or some idea of universal chi or force of this natural world, but one day that boat will be consumed by the vortex of Jesus Christ. There are a few things you should never do in life. Never trust a skinny cook, never board a, link, a leaking boat, and you should never take comfort in an ideology which will one day have to oppose Christ the conqueror because he will win. And if we are with him in faith, we will suffer no loss and we will know no defeat. So what does that mean? Because we've had those moments where we feel threatened. We feel ill-equipped. We feel as if whatever this competing ideology is has trump-carded us. And just because we win in the end doesn't mean we're not going to have aspects of our faith exposed because of our own limitations or because of improper understanding. It happens. It happens to me. It's going to happen to you. But this lack of understanding doesn't lead us to an abandonment of our truth or ultimate fear. Because we know the one who rules all things and knows all things has conquered and delivered us from all things. So Brad gave an example of that, those of you who are at Sunday evening service, this campus evangelism where people were giving these, um, lobbying these, uh, uh, critiques to Christianity of being a religion of hate. And he says, I can't right now textually or philosophically respond to that, but what I do know is the gospel. And the gospel shows that Jesus triumphs over that. And so if we know that, we could, fill every, we could backfill everything else later. But what we do know is that in the gospel, we win. 
In the gospel, Jesus has established himself over and above every other ideology of thought. God is not threatened by other thoughts, nor should we be, but we should be called to think deeply about it. And so with this, this is the largest portion of this text if you're looking at it. And Paul has just slow walked through this logical understanding of the gospel. And in so doing, he set up kind of two closing punches in the end here. And this is the next uh, warning we see. And this is a threat from those who think they can be Christian without the gospel. We see this threat in verses 16 through 17. He says this, Therefore, Right, Knowing that wonderful, conquering salvation we have in Jesus Christ, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So here's what we see in this passage. Is that we don't have to fear being misunderstood if we are in Christ. Here are these people who are casting judgments because they are doing something or not doing something that they once should have done and they're being misunderstood. But his solution is, is if you are in Christ, you don't have to fear that misunderstanding. You see, in previous verses, Paul warns us to not be taken captive. And in this verse, Paul warns us from allowing our lives or your relationship to God to be defined by some sort of religious observance. In our context, I actually think the place that we encounter this most is actually um, with people who are opposing the gospel or outside of it. And they, when we talk about what we view about um, uh, uh, gender roles and what is male and what is female and what is marriage, they say, well, how can you say that um, this style of relationship is wrong by appealing to the Bible, but the Bible also says you can't wear clothes of two different fabrics? How can you say that um, marriage is between a man and a woman when you eat shellfish and you love pulled pork sandwiches? When you don't keep the Sabbath in the same way they do? How many of you don't walk on, on Sundays or don't go to the store on Saturdays? And so there's this context now where it's actually being, these same arguments are being lobbed from outside the faith towards us. But the context of Paul is actually people inside the faith or thinking they're inside the faith, namely The Jews, the people to whom God has given the Old Testament, which included these laws. And as Stephen talked about last week, the Jews had this long-practiced tradition of following the legal requirements of the law. God gave them, uh, he says, you will be my people. My people are distinct and my people are perfect. Here's a set of laws which make you distinct and perfect. Follow them. And this included every sphere of our life because our conversion in Jesus doesn't just touch our intellectual life or our relational life. It impacts impacts everything. It changes every component of our life. So the law included every component of our life. It told them to not eat specific meats, namely shellfish and pork. It required them to keep specific festivals and practice this observance of the Sabbath in the most literal way possible. And these Jews had spent centuries doing this. And now all of a sudden here are these Christians and they come and they're, they're going to barbecues. They're eating pork. Their calendar is relatively clear of all these religious festivals. And turns out on Saturdays, they're not stopping work. And on Sundays, they're worshiping in a church. They're not following the Sabbath as it was written out in the law. And they say to these Christians, whoa, 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 whoa. If you're going to be God's people, you need to not do that 
and you need to start doing this. These are the ways in which we earn that merit and that standing before God. These are the ways in which we earn God's salvation. But here's Paul's point. Look at verse 17. He says this. These, these religious observances, are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Those were shadows, but the substance is Christ. And actually the Greek word here is the exact same word for body. And some of your translations might actually say, but the body belongs to Christ. The object which casts the shade, not in our like cast and shade vernacular now, but the object which creates the shadow is Jesus Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, they saw only that shadow. And God gave them that shadow for their good. He wanted them to have it. There's nothing wrong with the law. But in the New Testament, where Jesus has come and he's died on the cross and he's called us to believe in him, you no longer need the shadow because you have the body. You see the object. You see the beauty of it. When Jesus came, he said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He met every single commandment, even the ones that people use to criticize us, like the wearing of two different fabrics and the eating of shellfish. Jesus met every one of those perfectly so that that perfection might be given to us through faith. That if we believe in Jesus, all of that righteousness, all of that perfection, which stood demanded to be God's people, we get, but we get because Jesus has graciously given it to us. And because of that, we no longer have the needs of rituals to point us to Christ because we have Christ. There's no need for engagement parties when you're already married. There's no need for rituals meant to lead us to Christ when we already have Christ. He is the one who saves us. It was Jesus who declared all foods clean. It was Jesus who says we no longer need festivals of sacrifice because Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice. Look at Hebrews 1, or 10, 1, it says this. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are, are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Those sacrifices, those festivals, they cannot make you perfect, but look at what he says in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. We're no longer bound to sacrifices in a temple system because Jesus made the one-time sacrifice in our stead. We're no longer bound to a literal day of Sabbath rest because in our salvation, the Lord of the Sabbath has given us a rest from working for our salvation because it's by grace through faith. So what does this have to do with you today? This is the one component that's weird because we often don't have these demands placed on us, but I'm gonna say this, is when we hear those those, uh, critics of Christianity trying to debunk, trying to pit the Bible against the Bible, when we see what Paul is saying here, it's actually an opportunity to share the gospel. Yes, I do not meet the perfection of God, but Jesus did. Jesus did it for me. Jesus is the perfect, perfect righteousness that I need. Jesus came not to alter my actions first and foremost, but he came to change my heart. And because my heart is made clean, actions follow. And so there's freedom to a degree of how we act because I need ultimately to worship differently. And Jesus has changed that in my heart. So we don't need to fear being misunderstood. 
because we have reasons for why we do the things we do in Jesus Christ. Paul's last warning today is this. We will not be robbed if we've been given everything in Christ. We will not be robbed if we've been given everything in Christ. And so this is the group of people that thinks they can be Christian beyond the gospel. So I don't know if you understand what that means yet, but we'll get there um, in a second. But let's look at verses 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So here we see these kind of three challenges. The church in Colossae had secular challenges, it had Jewish challenges, and also there are seemingly challenges from inside of the Christian faith, which demanded uh, an empty humility, it demanded a worship of angels, demanded experiential visions. And it's as if these people are saying, sure, yeah, 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 I know, we need Jesus to be saved. Right, good, he died on a cross, sins, that's great. But now that we're in this, what's, where's the good stuff? Right? Where's the deep stuff? Where's the next knowledge um, that we can get to? When does the cool stuff start to happen? Let's move beyond the gospel. We get it, we needed Jesus, let's move forward. But Paul's phrasing of this text is really interesting. There's not um, really a word or a phrase in English that rightly gets at what he's trying to do. This is actually the only time in all of scripture where this word is used, and that's the word translated here as disqualified. Does anyone have an NASB in here? You do? Why don't you, can you read for us just the first part of verse 18? Uh, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. Yeah, and so the NASB, where we see do not delight in, or excuse me, where ESV says, um, uh, eyes need to work, no, let no one disqualify you, insisting on, the NASB looks at these words, and I think it's a little closer to what Paul is trying to say here. He says, let no one defraud you of your prize. Let no one cheat you from your prize. Let no one cheat you from the object you take joy in. And how are they going to cheat you? By delighting in these things. Or what the ESV says, by insisting in these things. You see, Paul, what Paul is saying here is that there are people who will attempt to rob you of your joy by taking delight in something else. I don't know if you've taken like social psychology classes in here. Bethany just left, and so she can't validate what I'm saying. Or she can't discredit it, so this is good for me. Um, but, but we see this trend where when a group of people begins to value something, that object begins to be seen as more valuable. Like if we all in here said, we don't need a new phone. But I can I show Brad my phone. Now Brad wants that phone. And now Megan sees that Brad wants that phone. And now, uh, now Carly sees that she wants it. And now everybody wants this phone because they're like, well, other people want it. Why shouldn't I want it? And we see where this happens all the time in our life. And in this text, Paul, the joy that Paul is calling them to have, the joy that Paul is calling you to have is being threatened by, by those who are delighting in spiritually sounding things which are actually opposite the gospel. These are, like, these are the people who think they know the gospel in the same way you've been to New York because your aunt sent you a postcard of it. Right? They don't really know, you don't know New York from a postcard and you don't know the gospel simply by checking off a box. And yet in doing that, they move beyond the gospel and I actually think this is the biggest problem we have in Christianity in America. 
because we haven't understood the significance and the depth of the gospel of Jesus that Paul just unpacked for us, this beautiful rendering of our hearts, this raising from life, this power of God through faith, we've moved on to other gospel void experiences, trying to find excitement or validation in things which are not God. But we do it in the name of God. And we call it Christianity. So, for example, last month, these were the top 10 evangelical Christian books sold in the U.S. So, what are, so we could argue about what publishers are putting out, but what really shows is what people are buying. <laughs> these are what people who claim to be Christian in America are buying at the highest rates. One was a book of social psychology of love. Two, where a woman writes as if she is Jesus. One on making this year the best year you've ever had. One on how to manage your anxiety. One is a biography of a celebrity Christian. One is on being a good leader. One is on how to invest your money well. And one is on end times speculation. That leaves one book of the top 10, even remotely or vaguely attempting to make the gospel and its application in our life the central thrust of its content. I don't know how one can have Christianity without having Christ. Or how one can be gospel-driven without knowing the gospel. To compound this issue, I saw a popular lead pastor of a large church post on Instagram. And uh, the post was a picture of uh, his four-year-old kid um, with his head bowed, praying next to a crustless peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Um, And he he said, I can't stop looking at this picture. Quote, This is literally the gospel in one picture. To which I ask, what gospel is that? And this isn't the average Christian. This is a leader of a large, significant church saying that his child praying for a crustless PBJ is equivalent to a Jesus who set aside a record of debt by dying for it, disarming rulers and authorities, being buried and raised by the working of God so that we might have faith and salvation. Crustless PB&J. And maybe we see like, well, this, this kid is praying. God wants us to talk to him. That's good. God, kids are concerned about Jesus. That's great. God loves us. That's awesome. The problem is, is we're separate from that. It's not good news that somewhere in this world there is a wonderful porterhouse steak waiting for me to eat it. Because it's separate from me. It becomes good news when I'm taken to that steak. It's not good news that God loves or that we pray or that God exists. It's good news that we could have access to that God. It's good news that that distance between me and him was solved in the gospel. But to say the gospel is not that is to miss the gospel. No wonder we get distracted. No wonder Christianity is boiled down to a set of political campaigns or sociological arguments. But take heart. There's no fault in the gospel. The fault is in our understanding of the gospel. If the gospel is nothing more than divine sentimentality, it will not endure the challenges of this world. It will sell tons of books inside of Christian publishing, but it will enrich no soul. 
it will be met by the rebuke of the prophets in the Old Testament where God says, you have cried peace when there is no peace and you have healed my wounds lightly. And we get so caught up in the mystical, vague, spiritualized application of Christianity. But to think that's the gospel is to miss it. And more condemningly, Paul says it's to be driven without reason by the mind of your flesh. In the same way you should be aware of non-believers who attempt to lure you astray by false philosophies, you should be aware of not being robbed by self-proclaimed believers who instead offer false gospels. So in this time, there's this distinction where uh, the church was wrestling with this, this heresy that what is spiritual is good and what is physical is bad. And so what that brought, that's where he talks about this, um, this, uh, this asceticism. People were like, I'm going to deny my body so that my spirit can thrive. I'm not going to eat. I'm going to afflict myself. And there began to be this division between what is matter or what is real, what is physical, what is spiritual. That was the first century problem. The 21st century problem is not that we've divided the flesh and the spirit, but that we've abandoned the flesh from the spirit. How many times have you heard an idea where as long as you love Jesus, as long as you go to the coolest worship concert, as long as your church is big, it doesn't matter how you live, what you think, or what you do. Because the Bible is just all about love. But there's a divide between the real matter of life and the spiritual reality of our souls and the comprehensiveness of God's salvation, changing all of that. Instead, we hold fast to the head Paul says this in Colossians 2, 19. He says, he disarmed, that's 15, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. See, God makes, when you consider your own life, when you consider those questions of where do you turn, where are you strong, what gives you confidence, here God makes no room for growth apart from Christ, in addition to Christ, outside of Christ, or in the shell of Christ. What this text says, if you look at it, it says it is only by God, from God, that we have growth, and it is only towards Jesus into which we grow. Our growth is from God and towards Christ. Outside of that, we probably run into one of these three problems. Our faith is simply Jesus. And that exclusive faith will meet all the challenges of our world because it's crafted in the mind of God who has no faults. And so here is what I want us to see here. If we don't know this Jesus in this gospel, you will miss the price. You will be defrauded of joy. You will miss that life satisfaction which is yours because you're going to be pushed off the mark. Because you're going to be led astray. You're going to be challenged, but what this is also saying is you need to grow. If you're not growing towards Christ, the challenges can be insurmountable. 
If we want to resist being carried away by deceit or deluded by poor desire, we must first learn to see Christ rightly and beautifully. I'll close with this illustration. I do a lot of weddings. Um, I guess I don't do a lot of weddings, but I do a number of weddings. I'm not like this Vegas chapel guy. Um, But I do a number of weddings um, for godly people who love Jesus and want to honor God uh, through their marriage. And uh, there's this beautiful thing that happens when you're the pastor um, and you're standing up in front of these people and you see the groom turn and watch his bride walk down. You see his face. You see the bride like sobbing through this. Or sometimes you see the bride like cool and collected and the husband's like this wreck up here. And you're just like, you feel this like weight of anticipation for it. And then they get up there and you watch their like sweaty hands try to hold on to each other's hands while they're up there. And these, you, you hear these quivering voices reciting these vows to love each other as Christ loved the church till death do you part. And it's beautiful. It really is. But I'm betting my experience of a wedding is different than your experience of a wedding. Because my guess is for most of you in here as being single people, you look at these two and you see the desire that they have towards each other and you say, I want a husband like that. I want a wife like that. And maybe you don't, that's okay, but this is just an illustration. Um, and, you, and you say, uh, I want that or I want this. But when I'm up there, I don't want that. Because through the two standing there, I'm able to look and see my wife. I'm able to see Sarah. And because of, like, this is real, I see this happening in front of me, but I don't want it in the same way they want it. Not because it's undesirable, but because I've been captivated by a different beauty. You see, if we want to resist desiring what is undesirable or desiring things which will one day be conquered, if we want to resist being led astray, the solution is to fall more in love with the clarity of Christ and the gospel he's given to us. Is to be able to look at a crowd and say, that one's mine. That's the one I love. That's the desire of my heart. And when that is fixed on that, then we can face philosophical challenges. We can face accusations of our actions. We can face the allure of something trendier or cooler or more mystical. And we can say, I'm good. Because in Jesus, I have no lack. Church, we can be satisfied in Christ. And in so doing, we can satisfy every argument of our world. Because in him the fullness of God dwells bodily. And we have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Let's pray. Lord, um, a a wordy, uh, heady text dealing with real issues. And whether we struggle with these now, we know that one day our heart our affections, our worldview, our faith is going to be challenged. So Lord, I pray um, that here in this confine of Chem 123, in this station in life, that you would build in us a strong and clear affection for the simple Savior, Jesus Christ. That we would throw our worries, our desires, our concerns upon the feet of him who has promised to take care of everything perfectly and wonderfully and we rest in him, and we trust in him, and we begin to let that relationship trickle down into every area of our life so that we might be the spouse you've called us to be. We pray all these things in your holy name. Amen.